0: Hey, and welcome to Product Journeys. I'm Frank Gleisner.
1: And I'm Lachlan Robertson. We're both product managers stumbling our way through our product journeys. We're out to meet amazing product people and learn a bit about their skills and experiences.
0: Today, we've got a great conversation with Dion Eid. Dion joined the world of product three years ago as a product owner in the expenses team, having made an unconventional pivot from sales. Although sales isn't the usual or even ideal background for product management, that was where he had developed his passion for solving customer problems and has taken key learnings gained from sales and from his previous studies and interests in economics and finance into his product role. Now in the senior product manager position, Dion is committed to helping drive modern practices and mindsets like continuous discovery and behavioral science into his team. Welcome, Dion, to the podcast. It's very nice to have you. Thank you. We're all in our little pods with our microphones. <laughs> yeah, so we'll kick off with your product journey, how you got to where you are at zero.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It's it's usually no easy task summing up the how did you get to where you are today question because for I think a few of the people I'd listened to on the podcast already there were a couple different pathways to getting to where they were. But there seemed to be some commonalities, like they came from engineering or they were always in product. Whereas I feel like possibly the way that I got here was a little bit uh, left of center, a little bit strange. So, gosh, where would I begin?
0: It's (laughs) It's interesting. The diversity of everyone is amazing, so I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm about to add to (laughs) that. To the patchwork. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, I guess I'll start in university. I originally was studying international business and languages and then quickly grew tired of that. So I switched to uh, economics and finance. So I did about four years of a conjoint degree. And then of course, by the end of it, realized that wasn't what I wanted to do either. So I left uni with this big degree, not knowing what to do with it, not really wanting to get into finance or pursue postdoc and go into economics. I was a bit lost out of uni, like a lot of us, and just ended up in sales, actually. So <laughs> I was like, well, why not give that a go? And, uh, you know, it was a great experience, but I could tell for a while that it wasn't me. It wasn't what I was interested in. I wanted to do something a bit more technical. Uh, I wanted to do something that felt a bit more at the coalface of creating things for people. So I started learning... Python on the side, because I knew that that was the language I was interested in. And so I did that for a while, working in a digital marketing agency, selling our services and tools. And then eventually I was talking to someone at Zero, and it sounded like a company I wanted to work for. So I thought, well, I don't know if I have the qualifications or skills to be an engineer yet. So what I'll do is I'll jump ship to a new company and... Just stay in sales. So I joined the WorkflowMax sales team at zero. About, oh, I guess it was about five years ago. I just had my five-year zero anniversary the other week.
0: Congratulations! Thank
2: you, thank you. I got the awesome mm-hmm. box with all our customer products, which is awesome. It's such a great idea. But yeah, so I joined the WorkflowMax sales team at zero, and I was there. I think I think it was about two and a half years, or just shy of two and a half years. I quickly realised I would never have the skills to be a dedicated engineer. At least I didn't have the patience to really own that craft and I realized it probably wasn't for me. And then I saw a product owner role come up in the Workflow team and I thought, this seems like a really good blend of my interests and skills that I have at the moment. And there's a lot that I'll have to learn. So I applied for that PO role. Didn't get it, but I got quite far through the process. And Anesh, who was the hiring manager at the time, the product manager of the Workflow team, gave me a lot of time and attention to grow that capability and help me see the joys in the role. It was a good blend of understanding the business and understanding the customers, but also helping shape the actual value we deliver with the engineers and designers. So I thought this is fantastic. I'm not really a great Python developer or engineer, but I can use my knowledge that I gained in that and my love of problem solving to to then take that into product management. So eventually I was successful in the expenses product owner role just about two and a half years ago. And yeah, I've only recently got the expenses product manager role. I think it's been about two months now. And of course, with the uh, role alignment now, that's senior product manager. <laughs> so yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but I've, I've loved
1: every moment of it. I'm curious the not getting that first step into the product role. Obviously, there, there would have been some feedback that came up as part of that but still you continued to push on and and learn what types of things were, i guess areas that you needed to focus more if you don't mind sharing that yeah
2: of course great question the main reason that i got or at least that i remember this is going back a few years so selective memory here probably but was that there was just someone a bit more experienced and qualified in terms of product management already or at least exposure to software development that didn't set me back too much I thought well I, all I can do is just try and get more experience in product management however I could so the ways that I tried to fill that gap was I just reached out to more product people at Zero and had conversations with them like what is actually involved in the day-to-day I talked to them about my experiences and what gaps that they thought I might have So obviously I kept talking to Anesh and I think I joined a couple ceremonies as well. And that was really interesting. And obviously just fueled my desire to join product management because I thought this is way more interesting than sales, at least for me, again, it's it's all personal. Sales is great.
0: It's interesting when you talk about the day to day, because I I get asked that sometimes and I find it really hard to summarize my day to day because it's really diverse when you were going through that experience. What was it about the day-to-day that stood out to you for a product owner?
2: So I'd say what stood out to me was the team, at least in the ceremonies that I joined, were talking about a specific problem. I'm trying to remember which ceremony it was now. I think it probably was refinement. And they were talking about this issue that they had. And they just kept having this back and forth about, okay, well, if we try tackle it this way, it'll mean this. What will that mean for the customer if we achieve or don't do this? And so just discussing all those kinds of trade-offs really stood out to me. Whereas in sales, at least in my role, you're a bit of a lone wolf. Like You're in a team for sure, but most of your day-to-day is, I need to call these people, I need to go meet these people, I need to achieve these KPIs or these targets and goals. You're very much in your own narrow-focused world. It's somewhat of a numbers game. Whereas what I saw with these teams in the product space was they were actually collaborating and operating as a team. And that's what really appealed to me. I wanted to be a key team member in a well functioning, well oiled team, as opposed to a lone wolf trying to achieve some goal. Because that just, I just knew for a while that wasn't me.
0: That's a great summary of sales as well, because I was going to ask you, what have you brought with you from sales? Cause yeah, that's am good too. <laughs> yeah, because I understand that sales, I talked to a few people now who've said, get in touch with the sales team. They have really good technical understanding of the product because they're selling it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said that you wanted to do something technical, it's interesting to me that, because my understanding of sales is that, you know, you have a really good understanding of the technical side of things. So... What's that transition been like?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I would say there are aspects that you dive into in sales in terms of understanding the technical nature of the product, but it's certainly more surface level. It's more around what are the limitations and constraints of the tool or the product, and how does that fit and not fit the needs of the particular person that you're talking to. There are technical aspects, but for me, it wasn't enough. I wanted to go deeper, and I would say you do get deeper in product management. You understand, hopefully, the architecture of the product that you are working in. You work with the engineers to understand, on a deeper level, the constraints that you have to work within, and then how you overcome those. But what I did take from sales was that ability to talk to any particular customer to try and uncover their particular needs in that moment and go, well, this is the solution for you, or actually, this isn't the solution for you. Here's where you can go instead, or here's something else you can do. At 0 we're very much hashtag human, so it's not like I would try and lie to them or cover up and say, well, yeah, this tool maybe could work for you. Just try it. You know, it's very much, uh, this isn't going to work for you. I don't want to waste your time. I also don't want to waste my time. So how about you try this ecosystem product instead, or how about you try this other product that's actually a better fit? But yeah, so what I did take is that ability to talk to the customer and... At least in my expenses product owner interview what i actually mentioned and i think is still true today is what i really took more from was my economics and finance education and those key things that i took from there were really understanding one the time value of money i think it has a different name but basically it's understanding the concept that a dollar Today is worth more than a dollar in the future. Because if you have a dollar today, you can invest it or you can do something with it. So, understanding that concept, which is quite simple, but getting it drilled into you really helped. And I've pulled that into product today. The second key thing that I remember taking was opportunity cost. I think it's something we're probably all familiar with now, but before I joined the product space, it wasn't necessarily something I was aware that I was going to need to take, but it's absolutely fundamental to understand opportunity cost. You can do something now that seems like it's a high priority, but you have to understand that it's taking something's place. So if I'm doing X and not doing Y, is it going to be a bigger cost not doing Y? than it will be a benefit to doing X. If that's the case, we should be doing why you want to try and minimize
1: the opportunity cost where possible yeah could, could you look back on the time value of money thing and just expand upon an example of spending a dollar now versus later was, was the thing you said but how does that work in the product space
2: yeah so i would say if we do something today is it going to have far-reaching beneficial implications for the product or for our customers or for the business Or can it be done later? If doing it today doesn't really change much in terms of any key metrics or goals you're trying to achieve versus doing it a year from now, then we should do it a year from now. So,
0: yeah. Would would that be like we know, for example, in a year's time, some legal thing is going to change and there's no point doing it now because it's not going to change for a year? But I'm trying to think how I would apply that in my space, like compliance or something. With that yeah. example,
2: Yeah, I think compliance is a great example. And we've even had a recent example of that in our team where we have a compliance requirement. So it has a, a set due date. It's far out in the future. We could just say, well, that's our top priority because we know it has a very important deadline. We need to do it. So let's just do that now and get it out of the way. And that could be a good decision to make. But if you know that the size of that work is a month, and you've got a year to do it, you should probably defer it somewhat because if you spend that month now, sure, you've ticked that compliance box, but you haven't done something else that may have had other implications for the product, such as updating a dependency or investing in making your engineers more efficient in what they do. And what could happen is if you spend that month now meeting that compliance requirement, six months later that requirement might change right or maybe you actually get some tools from somewhere else in the business that helps speed up your ability to deliver that requirement if we think we can achieve it in a certain time frame and we have a long time frame to do it i think it is a wise decision to defer that work not to the final hour for sure that's that's not what you want to do you do want to account for some delivery risk but if you can defer it where you can you should, especially if you can do other work that'll have a better net positive impact on your team or on the product or on customers.
1: I'm just still trying to wrap my head around it which it's cool, it's a good thing to think about the, the aspect that I think about within my space is when engineers have something that they really want to do perhaps that maybe doesn't have immediate value right now or doesn't help move a bigger goal forward having that conversation around is this actually the right thing to work on or not and I guess the other thing that I'm also thinking about is it's hard to actually know how long something might take the estimating of stuff like delaying it is okay but if that thing turns out to be actually a much bigger piece of work yeah. and you didn't get started on it sooner there's obviously like that's the other bit that you've got to prioritize or trade off against as well.
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah. You definitely want to try and understand those risks and assumptions and detailing that out and having a single place to talk about that with the team really helps. Because if there is an estimate that it will take a month, but our confidence in that estimate is 25%, then yeah, maybe you do want to prioritize that sooner, or maybe you want to spend a little bit of time trying to clear up those assumptions or mitigating those risks, so you can increase your confidence on that estimate. But yeah, certainly, if you think it's going to take a month's time, and you defer it to the last hour, and it turns out it takes twice or three times as long, then that's a risk. So you definitely want to try to avoid that risk as well.
0: There's, as part of this, frameworks or tools that you can use to pull everything together and work out those risks and uh, assumptions. And I'm curious what your go-to tools or frameworks are, either, I mean, this example, but maybe more generally as well.
1: Yeah, of course.
2: One thing that I've tried to do recently with our team that's still very much a work in progress is, and I know it sounds simple, but just having a single place for a given initiative or outcome that we want to achieve where we document those key things around that initiative or outcome. Confluence should be that space for us, of course. Really singing the praises of Confluence and making Stephen Duar happy, our head of engineering connected workplaces. Having that documented in Confluence that anyone can access so that we just know by default, hey, I have a question on this particular initiative. Why are we doing it? And what are we actually trying to achieve? Well, I know to go here. I think it's known as a a one-pager or initiative scoping doc or an outcome summary. Having that single place where I think at the very top you should always have... What's the objective? What's your goal? What's the problem you're trying to solve? How do you know it's a problem? Why are you solving it? And then, secondary to that, but almost equally important, what are the metrics you're trying to drive? What are the success metrics? How will you know you're actually successful in achieving that objective? So that if you start the work and you're not having the impact that you thought, you can pivot or you can change tact, or maybe you can say, actually, We've learned some new things. We've validated or invalidated some assumptions. We don't think it's going to have the impact we thought. We need to courageously prioritize and stop this work and move on to that next thing, right? Because you want to minimize that opportunity cost tying back to that. So I think that's a really useful tool. And I know it's not like a common framework or anything, but just having that, I think, is a really big must. And again, it's not fully embedded, I think, in our habits and our thinking in our team. And I, I want
1: to make sure we get there. I think that's a really great caller. And one of the things that I've certainly noticed in my space as well is it's not just the the why you're doing a bit of work and what the outcomes are, but also key decisions that you make along the way, especially when it comes to implementation of things. Why did we choose to do this? And what were we thinking at the time? It's yep. so useful, especially when you go back a year later. Why do we build this? <laughs> if it's written down, that's super, super helpful. So that's a great caller. 100%. And it gives room for people
2: to question it, right? If you have it on paper or if you have it in Confluence, people can go to that page and they can say, I don't think that's true. And we even had an example of that within our team because we were recently embedding this into our way of working. We had some assumptions around the problem we were actually solving and the impact we thought it would have. And there was a disagreement. And we only surfaced that disagreement once we had that document and started talking through it. We actually went, no, it's it's not going to achieve that. And I was like hold on hold on, hold on. That's why we're doing it. If it's not going to happen, in fact, why are we doing it? We need to stop that work right now. And yeah there was a bit of back and forth and we cleared it up and validated some more assumptions, which was great. It forces you to do that, forces you to have those conversations.
0: That's great. I think having that written down in a place that everyone accesses as well allows for that kind of transparency and those conversations to happen. And you talk about success metrics, and one thing I find really hard is tracking and going back and reviewing, actually, are we tracking as we predicted, and are we being successful? How do you do that in your space?
2: It's a good question, and certainly we don't have that down pat just yet. One attempt, I think, first is having that documented the success metrics you're trying to drive usually there's a conversation around what are the best success metrics and sometimes that has to spin off a following or separate conversation to say well actually what's the best way of knowing that we're contributing to or meeting this goal sometimes in fact oftentimes you don't actually have the metrics in place so i think a key action that should be prioritized asap is implement that tracking and implement that metric And we're getting better at that ourselves. We had particular key results for our OKRs, I guess, for the last few quarters, and we didn't end up prioritizing getting full coverage of those success metrics. And of course, when it came to the end of the quarter, we couldn't really say how much we'd contributed to or not contributed to that particular goal. And so the lesson, of course, is, well, you should probably start by implementing that tracking. sounds so obvious in hindsight. And... I'm sure it is to a lot of people, but a valuable lesson learned. So I think just starting off that conversation to figure out what are the best progress markers of that particular goal and just really pushing to try and get some kind of
1: metric in place to do that. And, and I think your, your last point there around the progress markers, the steps along the way to that ultimate outcome, perhaps I think in my space, a lot of the times it's about behavior change and things that take often a lot of time to actually achieve that full outcome that we're doing but obviously the leading versus lagging indicator conversation you can have these small leading steps if we know that people are doing this type of behavior or this indicator then we think we're on track and as long as you can track those stepwise bits that often is enough as well
2: yeah absolutely and that's sometimes what that following conversation is about right and i think some of that should be captured on that single page or that outcome summary as well in our template, we have the objective, the success metrics, but under that, we also have assumptions, key risks. I've started putting in a stakeholder list as well so that we're keeping the right people informed and keeping them informing us. There's probably a better way to say that, but, you know, allowing them as well, those key stakeholders to call out those risks and assumptions that you may have missed. Milestones as well that you're trying to achieve with that particular goal and objective.
0: Yeah, that's great. Having, again, that single source of truth as well, or one pager. I don't think that happens very often. So it's really nice to hear that you guys are driving that. (laughs)
2: That's good. If we talk again in a year's time, I'll let you know uh, the success or failure story there.
1: Sounds great. I guess pivoting a little bit as a product person, what are some of the key skills? that you use regularly in your, in your job outside of perhaps this well pager and, and particularly, I guess, with the lens of newer product persons. Are there particular things that you'd recommend them learning or, or looking into? Gosh, where would I start?
2: The common skills that I think are quite often mentioned that are just so important. So one is communication and stakeholder management in particular. You're never going to be able to stop improving your communication skills. So just making sure that you're continuously trying to uplift those whether that be verbal or asynchronous comms or better at storytelling as well that's always going to be really useful and the benefit is as well with communication it's fundamental to everything we do as as humans right so it's not like it's even unique to product management if you invest in that particular skill set it's going to have far-reaching beneficial implications for you and your career no matter what you do even if you leave product management. Prioritization is obviously a really fundamental thing that we do as product people. So I think investing in your ability to effectively prioritize and make trade offs, you know, related to understanding opportunity costs and time and value of money, I think is really important. And I think wrapping your head around the data that your product uses is really important. And that's not necessarily a skill, but Oh, I guess being data savvy is is a skill, right? So the best way to do that is have a question in your head that you're trying to answer and then try and answer that using your analytics data or your sales data. I think understanding the business is really important as well. And I guess that skill of being able to talk to customers, we're getting a lot better at that at zero and i know we're going to be getting better at that within our team as well talking to customers more regularly when
0: you say talking to customers going back to this communication again i suppose but what do you mean by that is that just being able to have a chat or being able to actually ask the right questions or
2: yeah mainly the latter in terms of understanding the right questions to ask that particular customer but There are a couple different lenses that you can take and a a couple different benefits to being able to do that and talk to customers more regularly. I think really important is developing customer empathy. And I think that naturally comes from having those conversations, understanding what problems each unique customer has, and then identifying the commonalities between them as well. It's really important. And that'll help motivate you and it will help motivate your team as well to solve those problems if you follow Teresa Torres or if you've looked into continuous discovery more heavily, you want to make sure that it's not just about having a conversation or interviewing for the sake of interviewing. But I still think that's a really important thing to do anyway, even if you haven't got that framework or that tool of continuous discovery really down pat just yet. But certainly once you're there, being able to ask the right questions and then take that output from that conversation with customers and turn that into opportunities and things to validate, and drive that into your roadmap as well.
1: The other thing you touched on a little bit there was the prioritization aspect. And there's a number of things (laughs) that you can explore in that state, but outside of perhaps the data approach that you're alluding to, how does one learn to better prioritize it? This is my question.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. If if you have the answer, let me know. So true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it just naturally comes from some of those things that I touched on. So if you understand the customer, if you understand the business, if you know how to sift through the data, and if you're connected to your engineers, I think that will help inform how and what you prioritize. Now, of course, there are lots of tools and frameworks out there to help you shape your thinking, and I could rattle some of those off. But I think the main thing to keep in mind, whether it be cost of delay, RICE, any of those really common frameworks that you can use, Understand that they're a a tool or a model to help shape your thinking. Never think that they're scientific. Don't think that, okay, if I get a right score of X, that means this is the gold standard. This is the thing to do. Just know that, okay, I've had to think through different things to get that score out of it. Now I have this gut feeling or now I have this view of this customer or this problem, and I actually think this is the right thing to do. Now I need to validate that, take that to the next step, validate that with design or engineering or work with them on that. Um, but yeah, never, never get the full sense that any kind of framework or tool you use for prioritization is a scientific method that means you've got to do this. this. is a very good point.
0: I think about it like a, even a, a model, an algorithm or something. It, it's more about the input data and the quality of that. It's to the model
2: itself. For sure. Garbage in, garbage out, right? So you want to make sure that those inputs are valid. And if in using any of those tools or frameworks, you don't trust those inputs, then you should put in some work to try and firm them up and get to a level where you can trust them. And that's a really useful thing to do. And then hopefully that then helps you shape your thinking further as well
0: yeah <laughs> okay so dion you're going to a party and you run into someone and they you say i'm a product manager and they're like i have no idea what a product manager is what's well, your elevator pitch at that point to explain what you do yeah
2: i love this question having listened to i think phil and stacy oh actually i listened to a lot of the podcast recently it was i think phil's that i would listened to most recently usually i gauge their likely level of understanding of our world that we operate in, for the majority of cases, they aren't in our world or space. And so I just try and connect to something that I know that they know and recognize. Usually what I say is, oh, I work with engineers and designers, because they usually know what that is. I work with engineers and designers to help build software to try and solve
0: customer problems. Nice, Yeah, I like
2: it. We're not yet at the stage, I think, where you can say to someone, I'm a product manager, and they understand what that is to the level that they understand what an engineer or a designer does.
1: As to like, whenever uh, things, it's like, I work in tech. And most people are like, oh, yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. okay. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, for sure. That's sometimes the case. Nice. In your career to date, what would you say has been like, the biggest lesson you've had or the, the biggest thing you've learned? Ooh. I think particularly in the
2: expenses area, I joined as a as a new product owner and we were delivering some key customer outcomes, really releasing a big, chunky piece of value to customers, mileage, and then non-reimbursable expenses. And that shaped my thinking on what we wanted to, to do and achieve. But I didn't necessarily have a deep understanding of what are those key, very non-customer-facing technical-driven or engineering-driven initiatives that we need to do and need to prioritize. So when our product went through a number of repeated incidents and stability issues, that really was a big learning in terms of, ah, we really need to make sure that we do X, Y, and Z, and we need to make sure that we're actually not just (laughs) releasing obvious customer-facing changes, but we need to make sure that we've got our bases covered and that we can actually reliably serve our customers with the product and the value that we have today. So being better at understanding that and then working with the team to try and prioritize what those should be has been a really important learning that's carrying on to this day,
1: for sure. That's effectively the, the space that I operate in, is <laughs> around helping make software more reliable. So it's, it's cool to call it that. The thing that I want to hear more about is a lot of those sort of activities around operating and running a system Just get grouped into like this BAU style thing, right? Business as usual bucket of stuff. If you don't have a clear understanding of what those things might be or what they are, how they can get you into trouble. So it's, it's interesting to hear that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm still trying to get better at and wrap my head around is when some of our existing metrics or health metrics are looking good because we've done work to improve them, how can you then better plan and prioritize? those big chunks of work that improve reliability or scalability or stability, whatever it is, ahead of time. How can you go, well, we're in a good place now. How can we get ahead of the curve and understand the big platform pieces of work that we need to do that'll allow us to scale in the future?
0: I feel like that's something that every product person deals or is a challenge in a way, balancing tech debt and product. And also your space is in the product space and the expectation is maybe that that's what you're kind of driving towards, which I'm not sure I agree with. How do you go about balancing that? Yeah,
2: it's tricky. It's tricky to get the balance right. Ultimately, what we need to do as product people, what is most needed of our team. We may need to sometimes get involved in conversations or sessions or things that aren't immediately producty things, right? because sometimes there just isn't someone there to wear that hat. So we need to because that's the need of our team at that given time. I don't think it matters if it's customer facing, if it's tech debt, or if it's platform stability work or being able to grow into the future. We need to be able to help best represent the customer because that's the whole team hopefully knows the customer, but we should know them more than anyone else. And then also, what does the business need, right? So understanding the viability and value risk. It doesn't matter if that's tech debt or not, or if it's customer-facing. We need to be able to make those trade-offs and make sure we're doing the right work.
0: That's really nice. I think it's perfect as well. It's what's best for the team. And the customer actually isn't always a feature. It's stability.
2: Yeah, a feature... Doesn't serve any value to a customer, right? If the product's down half the time. Totally. <laughs> they can't use it. <laughs> or if it's slow, yeah. If it's slow, not working as expected, then yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: awesome. And the flip side of your lesson learned, what's your greatest accomplishment?
2: Oh, greatest accomplishment. I know that sounds probably a bit a bit janky, but getting the product manager role in the expenses team. We often talk about, at least I often hear about in the product space, that sense of, uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the word. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, that's it, yes. I think going through all the challenges that we have in the last two and a half years, Mm -hmm. but being able to still go through that exercise and get that role certainly helped me validate the value that I could help deliver to the team because that's the main thing I want to ensure I'm doing is I don't really care about the title per se. I want to be in a position where I can fill the need that the team most has in this given time and make sure that we're heading in the right direction. And so I'm really, really honored to be able to fill those shoes and drive
1: the team in that direction. Yeah, very cool. And congratulations, obviously. (laughs) Thank you. Cool. So I guess to bring us home, switch fire and do some rapid fire questions, kick you off with a good one. Is there a favorite book or article you'd recommend people checking out?
2: Yeah. So favorite book for a while, I think has been thinking fast and slow by Daniel. It's Kahneman, isn't it? Kahneman and Tversky. Tversky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, my economics, that really helps satisfy that interest that I still have, and especially in behavioural economics. What I'm reading at the moment was, coincidentally, what Phil mentioned, I think, was built by the guy from Apple, Tony Fidel. So I I'm can't reading,
0: remember, but yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's that one. So I'm reading that one at the moment. I'm not in love with it at the moment, but it's been it's been an interesting read for sure.
0: Yeah, Thinking of and Slow is a fantastic book. It's a massive tome though I think that's the hard thing I studied attention and perception and it's so important as part of that as well so love it you're listening to this podcast what what other podcasts are you listening to at the moment as well
2: yeah way too many my favorite product specific one that I fell in love with when he started doing it was Lenny's I think it's just called Lenny's newsletter I was creating a really product-specific podcast for a while. There were a couple out there that didn't quite scratch the itch, but it's called, yeah, Lenny's Podcast. So he gets really interesting product people on, and he's a product person himself from Airbnb, I think. Great podcast. Also, all the Freakonomics ones. I actually love all of them, but my favorite is No Stupid Questions, which is just a conversation between Stephen Dubner and... What's her name? She's a psychologist. I can't remember her name, but that, that's great, but obviously, the stock standard for economics. and there's a really interesting health for economics one as well that talks about the crossroads between economics and health, and it's just yeah, really interesting.
1: Very cool. What is the thing you're most grateful for?
2: I probably have to say my my daughter at this stage, she's about sixteen months old and she's she's been amazing. It was challenging last year and especially in the lockdowns, raising a, a baby girl, but yeah, grateful for where she is now. And yeah. That's
0: awesome. Another congratulations. I feel <laughs> like there's a lot of <laughs> congratulations going out. In a crazy couple of years, that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. The last rapid fire question. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any key takeaways or call to actions? Nothing
2: that springs to mind. Just, yeah, everything that we've we've already talked about, but. Yeah, most importantly, for anyone that's not yet in product management that's interested, jump right into the world, listen to those podcasts, read those books and articles, follow people on social, talk to people at Zero, do all that stuff. It's great.
0: Awesome. That's great advice.
2: And listen to this, yeah. to this podcast. Keep listening to this podcast.
0: Yeah, we've got to get, keep getting those episodes out. So. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you, Dion some really cool yeah. things that we talked about today. So
1: thank you. Yeah, some great gems. And obviously for me, the reliability call out towards the yeah. end there. Good job. Thank you. Uh, the, the checks in the mail. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> critical. It's critical. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Thanks, Rand. Thanks, Lockie.
2: Appreciate yes. it.